Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD Hi, it's Michelle. Hey, this is Ted. And hello, it's Isaac. Welcome back to Spaßbremse. And today on the podcast, we are joined by special guest Ben Miller, who is a writer, historian, and uh, host of the Bad Gaze podcast. Welcome, Ben. Hello. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. And in addition to uh, being the host of the Bad Gaze podcast, uh, you also have a book called Bad Gaze that just came out. Um, so everyone can go find it in their local book sellers. Yes, they can. And also at badgazepod.com slash book. Wow. Wow. Sounds like a, a good link for the show notes, huh? It's a <laughs> great link for the show notes. <laughs> On the pod today with Ben, we want to get into sort of the history of queerness and sort of the gay movement, some gay history in, in, in Germany, because um, that's, you know, sort of your, your area of expertise. But before we get into uh, that a little bit, can you just, you know, explain a bit about your podcast uh, and this book um, that is just out for those who don't know about it, sort of what, what's the background? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so the podcast is co-hosted with Hugh Lemmy, who is also the co-author on the book. Um, it's actually his name first on the cover, um, because L goes before M. And um, Bad Gaze is... Close, you almost got it. Yeah. <laughs> very, very close. It went by first names, but that's not how books work. Um, Bad Gaze is a show about evil and complicated uh, queers in history, um, about people that we can't make into heroes, and we try to tell queer history and communicate some really interesting and important conversations that have been going on in academic and activist circles for a long time to a broader public through the stories of these people who had really fascinating and strange and sexy and horrifying lives. Um, and so that's what the show has been about. And then the book is 12 of these stories. Six of them are completely new and six of them are people that we've talked about on the show before. And through those stories in the book, we try to tell the story of how the white gay man happened as an identity figure, why that was a mistake, and what we should try to do instead. Um, and so that's the that's kind of the remit of the book. And I'll also add that for people who are listening to this who are Berlin-based, they can come see Hugh and I in person at Prince Eisenhardt's bookshop uh, in Schoenberg on July 5th at 8.30 p.m. And so there's a, so basically like this isn't just a, a series of biographies of kind of you know, interesting or grotesque characters, right? There's like a political motivation behind this choice of... of Absolutely. And I mean, the the both the show and the book are really shaped by Hugh and my related and I would say mostly shared political commitments. Um, he was probably slightly more of an anarchist than I am, but that's fine. Um, Still friends. The, <laughs> <laughs> the um, difference, though, in the... In the book, uh, I think the book is actually more related, excuse me, to that politics than the show. Yeah, the show is informed by it, but the book is really kind of wholly constructed in that direction. Because on the show, we make time for a lot of different kinds of stories that have to do with a lot of different kinds of things. And, and it's a really kind of broad um, spectrum of people from, you know, actual literal Nazis, like people who are active in the Nazi party, all the way through to Liberace. 
right? Where, where in the book, we're really focusing on people who help us tell this story of how the gay man happened and what, like what that meant in terms of alliance with man and alliance with white in that term, white gay man, um, and how doing both of those things separated gay movement politics from the, 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 the community politics of other marginalized people and from a kind of broader fight for solidarity. Um, and then thinking about what that mistake ended up meaning to how uh, gay and queer politics and culture look now. And then I think I think from our perspective, then on, on Spassbremse, uh, I think we're really interested in in you know you, you have one chapter in the book specifically called uh, "Bad Gays of Weimar Berlin," um, which you know explores uh, yeah some of these these bad characters of sort of the early uh, kind of gay or homosexual movements um, you know in the early 20th century in Berlin. And you know what I what I think is so interesting about this is that there's a sort of mythology I think uh, about. The, the sort of like early gay history in Berlin that is really, um, it's often told very positively. And I'm wondering like, what, what are some of the maybe um, myth busting or, or some of these narratives that you want to challenge uh, in, the, in the book about the sort of like early, early so gay what's the myth and, maybe yeah, what, what's before, the myth? before, before you? Yeah. Before, yeah, sorry. Right, how is, how is Weimar like gayness? Like, I mean, I think, I think some people have a vague idea of yeah. that, right? But like, how is that kind of constructed sure, for sure, people sure. that aren't familiar? So I think a lot of people have in their heads what I call the Liza Minnelli and Cabaret idea of how sexuality, politics of sexuality in Weimar Berlin worked. Um, they close their eyes, they see a lot of sequins and kind of dirty satin bloomers and like weird haircuts um, and chorus girls with hairy legs. And they think about this kind of dirty, filthy, subcultural explosion of sexuality and scary drag things. And then there was this almost inevitable backlash um, of kind of moral opprobrium that washed all of this away. Um, more sophisticated analysis or more sophisticated thinking um, would be emblematized in books, good books like Robert Peachy's book, Gay Berlin, Birthplace of Modern Identity, which a lot of people have read. If they, people have read one book about um, the sort of sexual liberation movements of Weimar Berlin, that's probably the book that they've read. Um, and that book does a really good job of showing how a lot of the ways that we think about a gay identity as existing now had their origins, at least in the modern Western world, in um, Berlin in the 19-teens and, and 20s. What we're doing in the book through the stories of these bad gays is trying to move to a more sophisticated place than that still, or to a more complex place than that still. Um, there was a book written a few years back by a wonderful historian named Laurie Marhofer, and they argue convincingly in their book really against that kind of Liza in Cabaret idea, right? That there was this explosion of sexuality and then the mainstream hated it and it was then covered up. And instead what they propose is that there was actually a consensus in the Weimar era about sexuality, about deviant sexuality, that there were certain kinds of deviant sexuality that you could separate out from the really bad kinds, that you could think about them scientifically and rationally, um, and that you could fight prejudice against those elements, but then keep getting rid of the really bad stuff. And so a, a big example that, that they use is one of the central um, points of contention for the Weimar era homosexual emancipation movement was the sodomy law. Um, this had come into the unified German legal code from the Prussian legal code after the reunification of the country in 1870. 
and um, getting rid of it was for every element of this movement a priority. And in 1929, they came real close. Um, and Magnus Hirschfeld, who is an activist and scientist that many people have probably heard of, he was gay, he was not openly so, he was a sexologist and doctor who published really widely um, on various issues of human sexuality. Um, and he also had an institute in Berlin called the Institute for Sexual Science, which was the archives of which were one of the first things that the Nazis burned when they came to power. Um, but Hirschfeld was at that time, uh, Marhofer shows, really willing to accept a compromise that would have made sodomy between men over 25 legal, but actually made the penalties against male sex workers and people under the age of 25 harsher. And then there were other people in that movement who said no, who said, if you actually look at who's being arrested, most of the people being arrested are still going to be affected by this new law. And in fact, the penalties are going to be harsher on them. Um, and so that shows how kind of there's the, how there's this sort of there's this sort of developing consensus about the kind of rational and scientific management and understanding of sexuality. And that, I think, is really one of the things that's really influential to this day, um, connected to that, the idea that um, same-sex oriented people are born this way, um, to, to move from the um, Liza Minnelli theory to the Lady Gaga theory of human sexuality, um, that we're born this way, and that born this way is not only maybe we're born with some predilection to same-sex sexual interests or same-sex romantic interests, born this way, as is popularly understood, assumes that the people that we are sexually attracted to are going to line up with the people that we're romantically attracted to. And that also lines up onto a relationship model, which is two same-gender people in a relationship with one another of essentially equal uh, value that is supposed to last. Um, that is not the way that most societies have dealt with same-sex attraction, sexuality, and romance over the history of time, which is not to say that never happened before recently, but it's just not, that's, a, that's new, as is heterosexuality. Heterosexuality is invented at the same time. And so what I think looking at some of the darker stories from that period can do is to help us to see how all of these things that we assume to be really stable and fixed are actually constructed they're actually products of their time. They are related to and shape themselves systems of production and exchange, systems of racialization, systems of empire. Um, and therefore, they change whether we want them to or not. Um, and they also can be changed by us in, to the extent that we, can, that we can shape history. That's really a historian's answer, but I hope it was helpful. <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, that's, it's a way, uh, sort of a subset of like things we try to do on this, like this podcast generally, right? Of like, oh, here's this thing that seems very set in stone, or here's this narrative that everyone understands, and then like actually getting into it and, and dissecting that. Um, yeah, and again, part of the part of the remit of this book is to try to get ideas about. I mean, the the ideas about the kind of constructed nature of homosexuality are. I mean, that's that's Michel Foucault's idea. And, and even before Foucault, uh, the historian, Marxist historian, John D'Amelio has a great essay called Capitalism and Gay Identity. Um, these are things that are fairly commonplace in um, queer activist communities. Um, there's that book by, by Marhofer that I just mentioned. But then when this stuff gets talked about popularly, when this gets, stuff gets talked about in public, usually 
the conversation goes to this very 101 level, this very kind of representation matters. Here's this story from the past. Here's this exemplary figure. Um, and so the show and the book are really attempts to kind of undermine that um, through the method of storytelling, which hopefully will get more people to move through our book to these ideas as they exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you mentioned that, you know, by looking at sort of some of these more, more darker stories potentially can kind of help illuminate uh, potentially, you know, sort of how we got here. Um, and, you know, one of those or sort of one of the most interesting stories, I think, especially in the, the um, bad gaze of armor Berlin chapter, and which I think was also the, the character who started out the entire podcast um, with is uh, this, this person named Ernst Röhm, who was one of Hitler's early allies, um, who was also gay, uh, and, you know, which might sort of seem counterintuitive to a lot of people uh, sort of in the present, like looking back uh, on the history of Nazism, you know, considering that homosexuals were also pre persecuted in the Holocaust. Um, and so can you kind of like help us understand like how did uh, Röhm, but also like other gay men in the early 20th century sort of like end up in this sort of allegiance with this kind of rising Nazi uh, movement and ideology? Sure. Um, so the most important thing to say here is to start by saying that gay men and lesbians and trans people were systematically victims of persecution by the National Socialist regime, period. Um, and it's important to start there because there have been a lot of far-right, mostly far-right attempts to cast the entire Nazi dictatorship as some kind of weird gay conspiracy, which it was not. To tell the story of Ernst Rehm, um, Rehm is a Bavarian paramilitary leader who, throughout the course of the 1920s, especially after being a, um, an effective and quite loyal fighter during the uh, Beer Hall Putsch in Munich in 1923, um, eventually comes to control the SA, which is the pre-SS Nazi paramilitary organization. Uh, eventually, he maintains this role after the Nazi rise to power um, and then starts demanding to be given control of the whole army as well. And um, when the conservatives who put Hitler in power uh, freak out, Hitler has him killed in the, light of, in the Night of the Long Knives, basically to uh, preserve his relationships with the Prussian military order and with German capital, um, both of which uh, Rehm was a threat to. I mean, A, taking over the army would have overturned the sort of Prussian hierarchy of things, and uh, Capital feared him because he was actually one of the few who was a real believer in the sort of Strasserite red-brown thing. He was, uh, this is something that um, his biographer Eleanor Hancock sort of very mischievously argues, the world's first openly gay politician. Um, that's a little bit too neat, I think. I mean, it's, sort of a, it's more of a provocation than anything else. Um, it's, uh, he wasn't quite openly gay himself, um, but his homosexuality was certainly an open secret among leading Nazis. It was something that Hitler and the other Nazis were willing to tolerate um, as long as he continued to be useful to them. Uh, and it was something that the Social Democrats, uh, just as the Nazis were coming to power, um, really unsuccessfully tried to make a major public scandal of. What I think is particularly interesting is the way that he was able to kind of justify his sexuality and his politics. Um, this is somebody who is profoundly influenced by a strain of gay thought um, that exists at this time, uh, which is 
I should say, a very heterodox strain of thought that includes both uh, people who are anarchists and more sort of libertarian than than socialist anarchists, but in the anarchist direction, and people like Rehm, who are who are fascists, um, that uh, scholars refer to as masculinism. Um, so, if the Hirschfeld Scientific Humanitarian Committee, that kind of movement, what their ideas are is a kind of early version of Born This Way, in which homosexuality is a stable inborn minority. Um, and they relate it often to gender inversion um, and to the idea that there's you know, some people talk about third sexes. Hirschfeld develops this very, very complicated system called sexual uh, steps in between, sexuelle Zwischenstufen. Um, it's kind of an early version of kind of thinking about spectrums that people might have might have heard about now. Um, the masculinists reject this, and they say that uh, homosexuality is the elite behavior of um, a sort of heroic ubermensch subgroup um, who are only more masculine for the fact that they utterly reject women everywhere, including in their personal lives. This is like a throwback to the whole sort of mythologized like Spartan soldier thing. Exactly. Yeah. Spartan soldiers, Alexander the Great. Yeah. Um, sometimes there's a really, to today's eyes, disturbing pederastic quality to the descriptions of this. Sometimes not. Um, and so there were actually... And, and so this, you can see, without saying that everyone who was a masculinist gay was then a Nazi. And it's also important to note that many but not all masculinists associated femininity with medicalization with Jewishness. Mm. So there was often a really anti-Semitic quality to all of this, as well as the kind of unifying misogyny of the whole project. Without saying that all of these people were Nazis, um, you can see how an ideology like this is actually compatible with the homosocial uh, social space of a paramilitary. Um, and so... There is this letter, uh, not a letter, sorry, an essay uh, that we that we cite in the book that was translated by Laurie Marhofer, a historian I, I mentioned earlier um, and written about by, by Laurie, which is the memoir of a homosexual stormtrooper, not Rain, but another stormtrooper, um, who writes about, I'm forgetting the exact quote, but it's something like, the same hands that punch the communists in the street in the morning caress their brothers at night. And so this, the, the way that this like outer shell of the masculine body fights and then it may so almost create like protects and creates space for this kind of interconnection. And so that's like that, that that's, I think, a really interesting, a really interesting story. And, and you also see how a certain kind of like it shows that a, that a kind of even a very sort of self-consciously gay or queer politics um, isn't necessarily a, a good politics. Um Rehm was probably actually a member of the uh, Friendship Leagues, which was the only uh, mass movement, only of these organizations that was mass movement. The Friendship Leagues had 100,000 actual members, like signed up members, and he was probably one of them. Um, and we know that he was in correspondence with and, and read the articles of uh, one of its uh, one of the, the Friendship Leagues uh, leaders, uh, Friedrich Kratzevite, who is also in this chapter and who is another of these really complicated figures. So Radzivite is not particularly ideological um, in contrast to both the masculinists and to Hirschfeld's kind of strain of thought. He is someone who is more interested in kind of popular media and, and making money. 
Um, he starts a whole series of magazines which are aimed at a mass audience. The masculinist uh, journals tend to be aimed at this sort of small community of self-conscious elites. And Hirschfeld's writing is, um, I mean, he does a lot of public media appearances and does some writing that's more popular, but a lot of the output is what we would now think of as coming out in research journals, basically. Um, Radziewicz magazines are magazines. Um, there are ones for gay men. There are ones for lesbians. There are ones for trans people. Um, there, these are some of the first places where lesbians and trans people write about themselves, um, to a mass audience especially. Um, but uh, they're, they're full of ads. Uh, the, the, the ad pages of this are wonderful resources for historians trying to figure out the kind of networks of, of bars and clubs and nightlife and all the stuff that was going on in, in Weimar Berlin at the time. I mean, I started this whole thing by trying to dismiss this like, you know, sequins and dirty underwear thing, but there were a lot of sequins and there were a lot of dirty underwear <laughs> and there were a lot of sleazy nightclubs. Um, and we, 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 can, we can trace a lot of that through the, through the ads of, in Ratzewitz's papers. Um, but <laughs> in uh, 1931, uh, I mean, so Radzivite the whole time is really trying to maintain this ideologically neutral line. At one point, he does a survey of all of his uh, members and um, finds that uh, the vast majority of them are supporting parties of the socialist or nominally socialist left, the social democrats or, or the communists. Um, but, but because there are some people who support the center and a smaller number of people who support the far right, he basically says, but this survey shows that gay isn't political and everybody come from every place and whatever. Um, and as the Nazis are threatening to come to power, he writes an article about Hitler that's so positive that it's written up in Die Welt as uh, das dritte Geschlecht grüßt das dritte Reich, the third sex greets the third Reich, um, in which he basically says, but surely Mr. Hitler will understand that, you know, um, that most of us aren't like that, you know, horrible Jew, Magnus Hirschfeld, who wants to drag everyone's life out into the public. We just want to, you know, respectable things in private. And oh, my God. Whatever. Um, now I'm really rambling. But uh, I think through all of this rambling, you see the richness of this period and how many parallels there are between the ways that people are thinking about um, their sexuality and this time and the ways that we think about our sexuality now. And I think that's what makes this period so interesting to study as a historian. Yeah, and 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 in in this chapter too, you also um, cite this uh, article written by Ratzevite, uh basically sort of like an early kind of example of like respectability politics, kind of. Uh, and I think you sort of draw that comparison directly, like by saying, um, you know, moral concepts are different today than they were a hundred years ago. This is even acknowledged by right wing circles. The vast majority of homosexual men of Germany do not intend to publicly display their relations and would never have thought of creating a homosexual movement if the legislators were not so irrational. And then sort of like trying to appeal to And that by the way, that's a quote from that third sex Greece yeah, the Third right. Reich article. Like that's the yeah. So you literally see how respectability politics leads to endorsing Nazis. Like in one article. <laughs> never would have crossed their mind to, <laughs> to like live this out publicly that's so bizarre. says 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 man who lives off of network of newspapers and magazines that are only supported by ads of people who are living this out publicly <laughs> my question just like while we're talking about ratsovite and sort of this like kind of early network of like gay or lesbian or trans kind of like publications that he helped or that he was running and um you know, like, obviously there are, like, lots of positive things that would have come from that. Like, you know, you say it was some of the first times that, like, trans and lesbian and gay people were able to, like, write in their own voice, like, and be read by other people like them. And, um, but then at the same time, you know, he's publishing this sort of, like, yeah, respectability politics, sort of really pandering to sort of the right. And so, like, how do you kind of square that, I guess? Like, is there is there something that we can 
is there something anything worth kind of like recovering from that history or is or is it all kind of like tainted by you know this like how do you kind of deal with that um, maybe contradiction there I mean I think there's plenty to recover from this history I think people are complicated um, and shaped by different times and moments and I mean the, the point of the show and the project is not to we're not trying to do your faves or problematic queer history edition. Um, I think for us, problematic is a criteria of interest and we want to move from that towards a more complex and nuanced view of these people as opposed to, I mean, okay, there are some people that I'm, compl- I'm comfortable writing off Ernst Rehm as any source of positive inspiration <laughs> yeah. for contemporary queer organizing. Um, but a lot of the people in the book are... I think more I think more complex and it's more interesting to think about why someone would do that um, than it is to just push them away although you can condemn it completely obviously I do so so what happens to this movement now after the uh, after the Nazis come to power well um, as I said already there was systematic persecution of uh, gay men lesbians and trans people by the National Socialist dictatorship Um, that is not up for debate Um, there has been some attempts by TERFs to try to play down the persecution of trans people. And there have been some attempts by some really awful gay men in the German uh, movement and the Historical Academy to try to play down the systematic persecution of lesbians. Um, and both of those are really uh, horrible and wrong. There was actually just recently, um, due to the initiative of many historians, including Anja Haikova, um, this um, Gedenkkugel, this sort of um, memorial stone, was laid um, to commemorate the uh, National Socialist persecution of lesbians at uh, Ravensbrück, the, the concentration camp at, at Ravensbrück in uh, Brandenburg, outside of Berlin. Um, however, not everyone was successfully killed by the National Socialist dictatorship, right? Unlike the um, Jews, there was not a state register of who was a gay, and so they couldn't be deported as efficiently. Um, a lot of people were, however, arrested and sent to concentration camps. Um, these concentration camps were then liberated, mostly by the Red Army. Um, and then you have this period of the two Germanies. What happens in West Germany is that um, Konrad Adenauer and the CDU take these gay men uh, and actually send them back to jail to finish serving out their sentences. Uh, in many cases, with the years they spent in the concentration camp, not counting as time served because it wasn't like official jail. Um, that's, that's the Stundenuhl policy, actually. That's that. That's part of the you know. That's part of the whole thing. Is like the Stundenuhl also means for your jail time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so and so you literally have the situation where where um, and actually uh, Adenauer's government sends a hundred thousand uh, additional gay men to prison under the sodomy law. In East Germany, things are comparatively actually a bit easier. But in uh, nevertheless, in uh, both West and East uh, Germany, kind of subcultures begin to form. Um, in the period before the wall goes up, there's a really interesting kind of movement and tension between these communities and these two different cities. And people are living on one side and going out on the other side. There's this famous story um, of, uh, this was told to me by a historian named Andrea Rothmann, um, of this lesbian, maybe transmasculine, maybe lesbian, um, East German uh, dog salon owner named uh, Rita Thomas or Tommy Thomas, who was walking home from a lesbian bar one night and crossing the um, bridge from Kreuzberg into Friedrichshain and was basically told by a West German police officer, if you cross this bridge right now, you're never going across again. 
um, and had to decide in that moment, like, do I go back home to my family and my, my like partner and my dogs and my life, or do I stay here? Like, what do I do? And also, there was a huge uh, export of the ideas uh, from the Berlin liberation movements of the Weimar era to other places, and these things were also being taken up anyway in other places at other times. Um, the movement in the U.S. was, I think, in some really important and underappreciated ways, seeded by the uh, Weimar movement, um, although not entirely, obviously. And then those things start to kind of come back here, and it starts to be more of an exchange. It's in 1969 that sodomy between adult men is no longer punishable with jail time. Actual paragraph 175 does not get removed from the um, Bundesgesetzbuch until after reunification, until 95. So then, yeah, so you have this kind of, this, this, this combination of um, obliteration and survival and, and, and tension. And um, as with everything else, right, there's so much silence around all of this. People, we forget now that the Erinnerungskultur, for all of its faults, uh, that really dominates a lot of liberal German discourse is a post-68, um, it's a post-68 thing, right? And so this period between 45 and 68 um, I think for a lot of people who are uh, who are who are gay and lesbian, there's a it's a trans. There's a there's a kind of uh, even double shame, right? If you were in the if you were in the camp, and this is something that people aren't talking about, and then the reason that you were in the camp is a reason they could still get you sent to jail, and um, and yet at the same time, there's also this kind of evolving what people start calling homophile um, in in English uh, movement of um, in in the 1950s and, and early 1960s, and then. It's with the election of Willy Brandt in 68, um, or 69 rather, that uh, the laws change just before Brandt is elected, but you can kind of imagine it as part of the sea change uh, of, of Brandt, right? And then the sort of, in this is the moment when, this is, there's a really good new book about this out by Sam Hunecke called States of Liberation about the sort of comparative uh, politics of gay life in East and West Germany. But... Um, the this is the moment when you could say in some ways West Germany moves, I don't know if I want to say moves ahead, um, but, you know, after the change of the law in 1969, um, as with many other places in the Western world, West Germany has a gay liberation movement um, that does the things that gay liberation do in a lot of places. It's this kind of um, expansive, um, alliance-oriented, um, often quite revolutionary, sort of new left-influenced uh, politics um, and that plays out here similarly in many ways to the ways that it plays out in other places in the in the Western world and, and, and is accompanied by this post-68 development of the Erinnerungskultur. And so those two things together... Meaning that for any non-German speakers, that's like the memory culture, right? Like the of the National Socialist Dictatorship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this becoming, becoming a big thing in the, in the late 60s in Germany of like right. people, younger people especially, pushing to say, hey, we need to actually remember and discuss the crimes of the National Socialists, right. not just and sweep not down to the find a point on it, you go from a CDU government of people who were mostly... Um, um, Former there, 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 was, there, was, there was some more linked. continuity than you'd think. More continuity pretty, yeah. than you would think. Yeah. To an SPD government where Willy Brandt, for all of his many faults, spent World War II as a resistance fighter against National Socialism. Um, and very famously kneels at the Warsaw Ghetto um, in this moment of apology that actually at the moment was not popular, which is really interesting. Um, but um, So all of this stuff is going on and, and gay liberation is, is connected to all of it. And uh, I think partially for that reason, for this group of German gay liberation activists who are also 
the kinds of people who are also involved in this new left and the kinds of people who are also involved in this post-68 Erinnerungskultur development, the figure of Magnus Hirschfeld becomes incredibly important because they discover that the grandfather, the forgotten grandfather of their movement for science and justice was Jewish. And they love that. They love that a lot because it's this like summary of all of the things that they would like. There's this, this summary of all of the things that National Socialism somehow was not. Um, then, as everywhere else, AIDS hits in the early 1980s. Um, and then this is where the German history really starts. The West German history, I mean, the East German history is already really divergent from the sort of other histories of uh, sexuality in the West. And the, the presence of that period of East Germany is what really differentiates um, post-World War II queer history in Germany from, say, France I mean, the, or England. That there's, this, there's this divided, literally divided country with really different um, economic and social structures. Um, but AIDS is also a place where, especially for people in the Anglophone world, the history and then the resultant activist history and sort of identity history is really different. So, and I want to be careful about how I say this because I don't want to make Germany sound like a paradise, but the story that a lot of people are familiar with um, or have become familiar with uh, thanks to people like Sarah Schulman, who wrote, who was both active in the AIDS movement and wrote um, this book um, last year that was really, that was really well received. Um, bad documentaries like How to Survive a Plague and good documentaries like Jim Hubbard's United in Anger. Um, but all of them kind of tell this, this, this story in, in variously good or bad ways, um, which is that uh, AIDS hits to a sort of murderous state inaction um, from ignoring it to open mockery to you know just doing nothing to to stop this and so out of, meaning this reaction particularly in say like the u.s the i'm talking about the anglophone i'm talking about yeah, the, yeah. The, the anglophone just to be history, clear, this is the anglophone history that we're talking about you have reagan in the u.s you have thatcher in the uk these are both uh, right-wing neoliberal very very homophobic um, administrations and um despite the fact that some people apparently want to make neoliberalism about foucault when it was actually like happening in Chile and was Reagan and Thatcher and it was extremely violently homophobic wherever it took power. But these administrations and these governments are just ignoring the problem and or openly mocking people who are dying of, of, of the disease um, or, or dying of, of what we would say dying with AIDS related illness. Um, the Surgeon General of the U.S. at the time, C. Everett Koop, later remembers Reagan in a cabinet meeting saying that people dying of AIDS are, quote, getting what they deserved. Um and so in the face of that, there is this tremendous uh, explosion, not immediate at all. Um, it takes a long time to sort of build up and gain power. But there's this big explosion of activist energy that brings together lesbian liberation, gay liberation, and trans liberation. Uh, people who are active in those movements. Saying brings together does not mean that they came together on equal footing or that things didn't happen in strange ways and that there weren't bad and unfair distributions of power within these movements between those groups to the benefit of white gay men. But to, to say that the people were there, were present from all of these sort of strands. Uh, and together, this idea, the word queer, the reclamation of the slur queer into a positive political identity takes place on the streets fighting back against this murderous state in action. Um, and this is an enormous political protest movement that lasts through the mid to late 1990s. Um, 
that's the story that a lot of people are familiar with. That's the upside. That's the the pink the pink triangle being flipped right side up, um, and and the the activist slogan "Silence equals death." Um, and this is the I mean this is the sort of the, this is the activist history that I think a lot of people are really familiar with who speak English. Now, not to give Germany any credit, but <laughs> they didn't in West Germany respond with total state inaction to a lesser extent than activists would have liked and to a lesser extent than would have saved the most lives, the state actually did begin to respond somehow to this crisis. By the mid-1980s, there were state-funded aids hilfen that were popping up. Um, And there was more of a public health campaign and acknowledgement and et cetera. Um, And so a lot of people died and a lot of people's lives could have been saved if we were able to have not shame-based and scientific uh, and uh, politically informed conversations about uh, sex and safer sex. I mean, the, the basic mechanics of safer sex were known fairly early. This was not a mystery. It was just a refusal to actually educate and talk about things and talk about sex in public in any and talk about like gay sex in public in any way other than condemnation. Um, a lot more lives could have been saved, but. There were no AIDS hilfen funded by the state in the U.S. And know. what exactly was like an AIDS? It was just a place. Like? And it was a place where people could get medical care and treatment, and it was a okay. place where people could get um, access to some sort of basic services. It sounds. I mean, now, the parallels you draw sound somewhat reminiscent of like the recent pandemic, right? Which some people have drawn parallels with AIDS, especially with Fauci, you know, in, in the U.S. Being yeah, sort of which involved by the, in both which, by the way, the, the, whole, the whole thing about Fauci was a shit. I mean, Fauci no, no, was a I know shit that. For all the whole like people were like doing mass dines in front of his house. It's really weird. I, I just mean in terms been, of the, the absolute inaction and apathy of the Anglo countries and Germany still fucking it up, but not fucking it up quite as bad. Right. And then Germany getting a ton of praise for it. So, so it's I like, don't know it's if Germany, a, I don't know if Germany gets a ton of praise for it, but what, what that does is it means that this, this forced crucible, this queer being forged on the streets out of these divergent movements doesn't happen. There are still, I mean, there's not to say that like, everything inside queer movements in the U.S. is hunky-dory. There are still really dysfunctional distributions of power. Uh, trans people especially are really often silenced and excluded and marginalized, and their needs are not taken seriously, even when they're used as kind of props. But, like, you don't have, like, gay men and lesbians who just, like, hate each other as much with for no reason as you do here still. <laughs> um, and these kind of real lingering resentments, really from liberation, that just never got put back together. The other thing that it does is it means that gay men start to identify with the state much earlier here than they do in other countries. Um, This is also true in the Netherlands. And this is actually, to bring it back to the book, this is something we talk about in the book. Um, Gloria Wecker, who is an Afro-Dutch, Dutch Dutch Surinamese um, lesbian feminist activist, um, made this argument. The reason why, so in the Netherlands, the Netherlands is one of the first places that had a kind of new far right. Um, It's the last chapter in our book is about the leader of that new far right, Pim Fortown. Um, Pim Fortown may have waited. His party came in second in the uh, 2002 elections. Very, very soon after, like in the middle of the campaign, he was shot um, by an animal rights activist. And um, he was leading in the polls. Uh, the party came in second. Who know, He might have become prime minister of the Netherlands if he, if he wasn't shot. Um, this was a ban on immigration party. This was a, you know, the, he referred to uh, Islam as a retarded religion. Um, that's his words, not mine. Um, that's why I'm using that word. 
you know, really, really far right. But this is also somebody who was so gay that he literally, during the election campaign, went on TV to do interviews about how good cum tasted. So somebody was talking on television during the election campaign about the taste of cum. And this is someone who says, well, I can't be racist against Arabs. I love sleeping with them in dark rooms. And one of the arguments that Gloria Wecker makes is that the reason why he's like one of the reasons why he's able to pull this off and one of the reasons why the Netherlands is also one of the first places where gay men and lesbians start to vote more like other people in their social group than like a coherent block, which is to say that upper class white gay men and lesbians start to vote for the right, um, is that because gay men identify with the state, they identify liberation with the state, and they see their project as having succeeded at getting them state recognition, they then see other claimants to the state as threatening their position with the state. And so then, and that's how you get to this place of understanding liberation as being finished. We did it, right? It's over. And we did it. It was a national project. It was people like us. And now the scary immigrants are chasing us away or the scary immigrants are threatening this progress that we have made. So this is, this and you see that in you see that all over the place in Europe, especially related to women, is where people are really going to think about it, right? If you think about all of the ways in which, um, you know, there's there's all kinds of active, and many of them have been people experts come on your show to talk about all of the ways in which Germany is not a paradise for women, um, and and yet um, there's still this really dominant discourse that like immigrants are threatening women's rights in Germany or immigrants are threatening women's liberation in Germany, which is something that we have done, which is whatever. And, and again, historians have shown that like migrants, like there have been people of color in Europe for a really long time. Um, and there were immigrants in Europe during the sexual revolution and immigrants in Europe were part of the sexual revolution and were active in it. Um, and yet uh, this, this narrative gets constructed and I think it has to do with state recognition. I think this is a, it raises a really interesting question about, I mean, I guess generally some of these liberatory movements, but, but particularly here, because it almost seems like there's a zero sum game for like total rights as, as soon in, in society, right? As soon as like this one, or the way you're describing it, like as soon as white gay men get some kind of recognition from the state, they turn around and become in many cases more conservative and then want to take away the ability of other people to get those rights. So like, is is this just like a trade-off that we observe in pretty much every country where people move to the right when things get better and like these sort of liberation is a victim of its own success? Or is is there a way, is, is there a context in which people have gained rights without then turning around and kind of raising the drawbridge for everybody else? I mean, that's a really tough question to answer. I think there are a lot of cases where we have seen real lived solidarity uh, between people. Um, I don't know if rights is how I would frame that. I think state recognition can be tough for this reason. And that's one of the reasons why, as a lot of activists and smart people and, and intellectuals were, were pointing out this entire time, one of the reasons why orienting the gay movement around rights claims and demobilizing around those rights claims is a really stupid idea. Um, like in the U.S. right now, the gay rights movement made marriage equality its essentially sole goal. They demobilized the activist base and pursued an entirely inside game legal strategy that was hinged on building a record of jurisprudence coming out of Anthony Kennedy's pen. And the whole strategy was hinged on getting Anthony Kennedy to write the Obergefell decision. He writes the Obergefell decision. Three years later, he retires under a Republican president. 
He's replaced by Brett Kavanaugh, who was one of his clerks. And they are now poised to overturn that. And that movement has now been demobilized. It doesn't exist anymore. I mean, those, those networks have to be rebuilt um, if you want to start getting. And, and they're going to come for they're going to come for sodomy too in the U.S. next. I mean, they're going to they're going to try to to overturn the case that prohibits states from enforcing their sodomy bans, which means that they're likely to overturn the case that prohibits states from enforcing their sodomy bans, um, which means that in many states sodomy will become illegal again um, if that happens. But that I think shows us the fragility of some of these rights claims um, and the ways that in addition to being a failure of solidarity, this politics of pulling up the drawbridge is also fails at keeping us safe, right? It doesn't even, even someone like me, a privileged white gay man, is not protected by these politics actually in any kind of meaningful or long-term like durational way. Yeah. I mean, and I think you, you highlight this important critique that, I mean, it's uh, a number of scholars have, have discussed this, I guess, but the idea of, the, and I know this mostly from the U.S. context, um, but the the effective like conservatism of the gay rights movement in the late 20th century and and, and early 21st, right, where it's it's not about it's not a more sort of disruptive or ambitious goal. It's about I want into the like existing power structures, right? I want I want to be able to marry, which is you know one of the most conservative institutions we have, and it's saying I I want to be able to do that rather than I want this movement to lead to a more like a, a broader reconsideration of existing social and sexual norms. So, like, did right. was there a similar sort of conservatization of the gay movement in Germany, or did this lack of this big break in this sort of uh, the the oppression and then the solidarity that emerged from that like did did that alter the political trajectory more towards the late 20 and early 21st century here versus the anglo countries well so these things happen in uh, these are these are questions of degree not of kind yeah um what i think is different here is that all of when we talk about the conservatism of the gay movement in the anglophone world with some notable exceptions, we are still talking about people who are belonging to voting for and allied with center-left parties. The way that Hirschfeld was allied with the Social Democrats in the 1920s in Weimar Berlin. Sort of broadly people of the center-left. And then we have, just as we might, as Laurie Marhofer advances that critique of Hirschfeld for being willing to kind of undermine the sex workers in order to get, in order to get this other kind of legalization passed, we might say, oh, you, you know, you were willing to throw these people under the bus in order to, in order to get XYZ legal right or you constructed the argument around this right that is beneficial to you and not maybe the thing that's actually going to help the most people or, or what have you. The difference then in Germany, I would say, is that because the state recognition happens earlier, you get more people, and not just in Germany, but also in other countries where these patterns of state recognition are different, right? The Netherlands is one, and that's in the book with the, with the Fortown example that I was talking about earlier and, and Gloria Wacker's argument. The, the, the state recognition, the earlier state recognition leads more people to actually go to the far right and not just to the kind of um, mainstream, like conservative mainstream center left um, or to the or to the actual to the actual right. And in many cases right now in Germany, these are not people who would self-identify as being on the right or the far right. But I would I would maybe say that they are the past few weeks, given that she started to have some really um, extraordinarily um galaxy brained things to say about Ukraine, a lot of people may have become aware of someone named Alice Schwarza, who is the editor of Emma magazine, um, and is kind of a, has been a, a feminist uh, writer and, and activist and journalist in Germany since the since the 80s. And before um, 
she has also, uh, she has a long history of saying very racist things, uh, but she has also been recently really prosecuting the case against Tessa Ganzara, who is sort of in creating this fake scandal about Ganzara. Tessa Ganzara um, is one of two trans women who were the first trans women elected to the German Bundestag uh, in the most recent elections. Uh, Tessa Ganzara came in over the Bavarian Green land list, the like state list, um, and occupied one of the women's spots on that list, which is right because she's a woman. And uh, Alice Schwarzer wrote an article about her called The Quota Woman, about how she's not really a woman, uh, and used this to try to attack the coalition's desire to replace Germany's really horrible and outdated uh, and violent um, so-called transsexual law with a law, like gender self-ID, self-determination law, which is a sort of functional uh, good law about how trans people can get healthcare that makes sense for them. And Schwarza has been supported by some uh, really, I think, kind of awful people, uh, some of whom are in kind of gay scenes and movements, active in gay scenes and movements. Um, most infamously, maybe Jan Ferrasen, who's been an editor at the Tots, uh, left liberal newspaper for a long time, who also has a really long history of saying racist things in public. Um, and who also has a history of platforming really awful transphobes and talking about how trans people are a danger to gay liberation and a danger to lesbians and, you know, all of the, all of the usual kind of turf transphobic bullshit. And uh, there's really, I would say, a concerted effort right now by some of these people to import the dangerous and violent and extremely stupid culture wars about trans people and especially trans women from the UK and to bring those into Germany. Um, a few years ago, a lot of these people in sort of a somewhat different constellation uh, were promoting a series of books, the first and most infamous of which was called Beisreflexe, Bite Reflex, um, which was a book that was kind of an anti-cancel culture panic book um, that talked about how we need to fight, um, what is it, we need to fight religious discrimination, but we also need to fight Islam and Islamification. Uh, one of that book's editors, uh, Patsy Lamorla Love, had this very short-lived organization called Velos Stadt Erlos, Erlos Stadt Velos, sorry, um, which was, which was um, about how, you know, we have to be honest about the fact that, you know, it's these Muslim migrants in Neukölln that are suddenly attacking Jews and gay men on the street and making our lives so dangerous. Um, and so I think you see some of that. Um, I think you don't quite, I mean, there, there are certainly examples of this in the Anglophone world, you know, the whole life and career of Andrew Sullivan, um, Rick Grinnell, who was, who was uh, Donald Trump's ambassador to Germany um, and one of the worst gays ever. Uh, but I don't think does you see... No, he does not. The book only... Can't is imagine about, him being that interesting. The book is only about people who are dead. Um, <laughs> but you see, uh, I think, in it, with that earlier state recognition, you see people doing this more, more often and more virulently. Uh, and oftentimes people kind of buying into this kind of narrative without thinking of themselves as being a person of the right or the far right. Um, that also has to do with the way that racism, that's like crazy way that racism works here where people don't like where it's not, it's so unacknowledged even by people. Um, just a few weeks ago, I was having a conversation in a, in a, a gay bar in Schoenberg with the bartender who was started talking about how upset he was about the changing neighborhood and I was like, yeah, fuck yeah. I'm trying to like talk about rent. And he was like, no, I'm just sick of Romania bringing a dump truck and putting all of its problems on the street in front of my house. This used to be, this used to be our neighborhood, he said. And now it's for these no. Romanians. 
And so you, you really see how some of these ideas kind of penetrate when you start to think about like, we're gay men, this is our neighborhood, and it's the state's job to keep this neighborhood for white German gay men and like to protect us from, from the migrant, right? Uh, which is also something that Jasper Puar writes about. I guess I'm wondering where like Berlin specifically, like Berlin is still kind of considered, I think around the world as this kind of like, you know, gay Mecca or whatever, like people still move to Berlin because of its sort of history as this queer place. I mean, that's part of the reason why I wanted to move to Berlin. And like, so how do, how do, how does that sort of fit in with, in this story, sort of this in- international maybe kind of like uh, sure. appeal of Berlin? So I'll just, just to finish telling the kind of history that's been, that's been backboning this whole episode. So then we have in 1990, the reunification of the two Germanys. Um, we have... Uh, this enormous kind of land rush right into former Eastern Europe. We have the birth of EasyJet Europe. Um, the you know all of a sudden places that used to be you know uh, cement factories and coal factories and power stations are now abandoned and can become techno clubs. And um, there's uh, real estate in Berlin becomes really cheap. This is a time when people are paying people in Prenzlauerberg to take over their apartment contracts so they can leave. And Berlin becomes the sort of poor, sexy capital. You have this whole sort of scene that gets photographed by people like Wolfgang Tillmans, and it creates this whole kind of, you know, those sort of, uh, to replace the sequins and the sequins and dirty underwear, it's like track pants and dirty Adidas. Um, for the record, I'm wearing Nike sneakers today, but um, track pants and dirty Adidas, like gay you are wearing track pants. scene. I am wearing track pants, yes. Um, and they do have white stripes on them, but they are not Adidas. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that sort of, that sort of visual culture and style that, that then gets transmitted in all these magazines around the world. And then it becomes this Berlin becomes this kind of icon of a certain kind of gay subcultural, uh, sexy, cool, uh, thing. And that's where we are. I mean, we're kind of at the place where that's starting to devour itself, where the free real estate, the cheap real estate is starting to run out, um, where that whole project of European integration is starting to look maybe a little bit shaky, although maybe not now that it's been given in a weird way, been given new life by this horrifying, pointless, um, and, and, and very deadly and, and uh, illegal invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And so there is, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, and you even would see, I mean, this is, this is something that the times of this are really past. Uh, if it was a year ago, um, I would be talking about how now cities further into the former East, like for example, Kiev, were becoming quote unquote, the new Berlin with mm-hmm. that being the place where, where people were like, like sort of cool queer stuff was supposed to be happening and people were kind of columbusing these places um in in ways that are really complicated right because on the one hand you can criticize the you know it's kind of cringy for people to like do kind of this weird post-soviet disaster porn gay sex tourism thing and on the other hand there are definitely a lot of like communities and spaces and subcultures and like local organizing things that sort of benefit from these global networks and are happy to have people there and are happy to have attention and they're happy to bring money in and are happy to, you know, be in, be in conversation. So there's both of these things are happening at the same time. Um, And then obviously um, that's like, that's not happening in Kiev right now, but um, that was, that was kind of what was happening. Even as like up through last winter, people were going to Kiev to party for the weekend. Uh, which is uh, weird and crazy. But it's happening in, in Sarajevo, it's happening in Tbilisi. Like, I've yeah. heard so many of these, like, East, yeah, places called the New Berlin. There's so yeah, many yeah, New yeah. Berlins in Eastern Europe. Yeah. So, one thing, one thing I'm just curious about, and I think it, it kind of ties together, like, a lot of these different strands and, and maybe, maybe problems that we've discussed is, 
uh, Christopher Street Day in Berlin, which is part of like Berlin Pride Month. I think it's on the 22nd of July this year. Um, Christopher Street Day, referring to Christopher Street of New York, right, where the Stonewall Inn was famously. And so why, one, why is the gay pride big parade in Berlin named after a street in New York City when there's a very very proud history here, obviously, um, as we just discussed for the past hour. And also, like, the way this works is it's very, like, corporate-sponsored, right? It's like there's the N26 float and the, you know, Fudora float, and it's, it's all very, like, mm-hmm. it's, it's not, it's, it, it ties into this idea of, you know, the sort of, uh, I, I guess, the a group you, you kind of criticize, right, of, like, a, a wealthier white gay man, and it seems very, like, representative of maybe that group of people and that representation of LGBT culture. And so, like, what... What's going on with Christopher Street Day? Like, how did this, if you know anything about the history, why is this how it is in Berlin? I mean, so you can't, I mean, you can't really call a demo Stolz. Like, you, you can't be like the Stolz, Stolz Tag. Like, it doesn't, it just doesn't sound right. I don't know. They would just um, say pride, though. I mean, they so I think English pride. <laughs> well, and even Christopher Street Day, pride. Uh, Christopher Street Day, it's not called like Christopher Straße Tag. It's called Christopher Street Day. Um, but uh, I mean, I think it's, it's named Christopher Street Day because so in, in 69, June of 69, as many people know, there's this uh, moment of uprising in which um, trans women, drag queens, lesbians, uh, gay men, all of whom are most of whom are working class uh, or sort of lumpen proletariat um, and, and none of whom are the kinds of people who we usually think about as important, um, significant political actors, which is not to downplay what they did. It's to say that we should think more more expansively about what political actors look like um revolt against a police raid of the stonewall inn in greenwich village and there's three nights of rioting and this becomes a symbol for the beginning of a moment of gay liberation that is already beginning but it becomes a really powerful symbol Um, and at the time by the way this is opposed by a lot of conservative gays who are sort of horrified by all of this uh, nonsense that's that's going on and like these people are making us look bad and they're making us look silly and they're you know there's yeah Pride as an event starts the year after as a political march in New York City from Christopher Street to Central Park to commemorate this event. Um, And then over time slowly becomes more institutionalized. Uh, When it comes to Germany, it comes as Christopher Street Day to acknowledge the history of Stonewall um, and to acknowledge the kind of history that that it's based off of. It, of course, is only in West Germany until until the reunification. Uh, and um, actually, for that reason, the one in Cologne is still the biggest. Before the reunification of Germany, Cologne was the gay center of West Germany. And so Cologne is um, still has the biggest pride uh, in Germany and one of the biggest in Europe. In terms of what's going on with, with, with Christopher Street Day now, I think the, the various forms of Christopher Street Day and pride celebration in Berlin right now do a lot to explain what queer life in Berlin looks like right now. Um, so you have the mainstream Christopher Street Day event, which the board of Berlin CSD has just changed over, and I'll say they're really trying. Um, I mean, it's a it's a quite male board still and a quite white board still, but God, they're trying so hard. I mean, they really want to be like nice. CSD, like in German, things is normally yeah they don't they don't say the whole thing because it's like they really want to be. But it always just looks like CSU to me when I don't see the top of the D. <laughs> it's just probably. Uh, um, I mean, I, uh, it just to, and, and when I say they're really trying, I should say, in, in all honesty, in all in all honesty, they had me last year. 
uh, to yell a speech off of one of the floats. And actually, we were right in front of the Yulis, and I like diverted from my script <laughs> and just screamed at the Yulis about Turingen and the, like how the, dare the young you? liberals, the, mm-hmm. uh, the 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 junior wannabe uh, FDP. Christian Lindner FDP kids, yeah, yeah, and the gay ones are just like. <laughs> Talk about evil twinks. The worst. But <laughs> anyway, um, Christian Lindner has profound evil twink energy. Uh, the, it's like aging evil twink energy. Anyway, um, so they're they're trying, but it's still a very like, you know, the theme is always like, love is respect, you know, <laughs> or like together against the far right for freedom and joy. Then in 2010, um, the Berlin Christopher Street Day uh, gave, uh, decided to give an award to Judith Butler, uh, the very well-known Jewish-American uh, scholar and academic and gender theorist. And Butler showed up in 2010 and got on stage and turned the award down and said that, like, you are racist, you are pinkwashing, um, you are, like to pro-Israel, you silence Palestinians in this country, and I will not accept this award. The reason why a lot of right-wing German gays still like hate Judith Butler, in what I will say right now is a profoundly anti-Semitic way. Uh, like the way that she is just described in a lot of right-wing gay German media as the anti-Semite Judith Butler when she goes to fucking shul and your grandparents fucking like did the Shoah is an outrage, but anyway. This then kicks off a long period where Berlin was unable to have an alternative pride of any kind because of conflicts about Israel-Palestine, because there are always fights between those elements of the German left that are, um, you know, the anarchists who love the IDF um, and those elements of the German gay left that are more um, that are um, more international, that are more connected to uh, the global left and its discourses on uh, Israel and Palestine solidarity. Um, that are, uh, you know, this Berlin has in the past few years, especially since the um, war in Syria, become a real center of uh, Middle Eastern and North African diasporic intellectual life, including queer intellectual life. And so you have a lot of people who are queer Palestinians or a lot of people who have a Palestinian family background or history and a lot of Jews, a lot of queer Israelis in Berlin, who many of whom moved to Berlin because they didn't want to live in Israel and who have a wide variety of views on what Israel is doing and what Israel shouldn't be doing it. But anyway, uh, there were all of these conflicts, like escalating conflicts. Um, things kept getting canceled. At one point, uh, a few years ago, there was a queer anarchist pride where the queer anarchists called the cops on the pro-Palestine block and had the police actually surround the pro-Palestine block and stop them from marching with them, um, which then led to... <laughs> you can't even drama which then which then which then led to drama in the anarchist community because some of the anarchists were like yeah stop the anti-semites and some of the anarchists were like but you called the cops and you're an anarchist like what like was, what are was you doing this last year or was this, this was before covid but it was fairly soon before covid because i remember something um, happening last year and then before. last year and then last year was one of, last year was the first year that there was the 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 internationalist alternative queer thing did a march on the same day as csd that was called International Queer Pride, where they just basically said, if you're anti-Deutsch, don't come. Um, there's a poster and, hanging above us There's a poster hanging right above now. us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking about this. Um, which, and of course, this is also an event that's like against anti-Semitism. That's um, like, there are many Jews participating in this event. I just want to say that. Uh, but it's also like an anti-racist and internationalist pride that like welcomed uh, Palestine solidarity alongside a lot of other anti-colonial and anti-racist and anti-capitalist political movements. Um, and so seeing that come together, I think, was really exciting for a lot of people. But basically, so in, in, this, in how these different days work out, 
you can see how the sort of all of these different divides, um, all of these different histories and these different uh, communities of kind of expats and migrants and, and people who are living here are negotiating uh, these these spaces and these identities in really different ways. So it's like a it's like a warning for anyone you know in, in North America or elsewhere thinking about like yeah Herb Berlin's a great person to be like a leftist or like a a gay person it seems like it seems like such a such a hub for that and it's like here's your here's your um, extremely complex diagram of all the different groups and all the different issues they and why they don't like each other and their different marches. Uh. Yeah, exactly. And also, by the way, um, that that like idea of like oh, and I'll move to Berlin and I'll just like get a flat. Like, no, you won't. No, no, you won't. I, We're not saying that in like a xenophobic "don't come to Berlin" way, but like you literally won't. <laughs> not not to sort of like go back and, and harp on this too much, but I, I just like to go back to the whole CSD thing. Like one of the things that I find so strange, and I think maybe what we also find strange is like, like I know that you under you, or you explained like why sort of the Christopher Street moniker kind of came to to Berlin, and like that history does kind of make sense somewhat, but like no other place does that. Like, it's not like in Poland or in the Netherlands or in France, whatever, they're not calling it Christopher Street Day. Like, they're just using the word pride. Like, and it just, it does seem still strange. And like, maybe it's actually not a very interesting, like, explanation or story or background. But like, it does seem sort of strange to me that like, Germany has settled on like, really going, like, leaning into the whole like, American connection. I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that I can really assign that much meaning to that. Yeah. Um, but I do think it is really interesting to think about the extent to which the Anglophone structures of understanding have then come back <laughs> here. Stacked on yeah. top of exactly. You can really see, you can really see how, like, even here, like that, that comes back. Um, and again, I mean, this the. The stuff that I was talking about earlier in the episode, the history of Weimar Berlin and, and the kind of gay movements there, and thinking about that as a really important kind of origin story for mass movement gay organizing, um, gay, gay rights organizing in the 20th century. Um, that stuff that's left out of histories that are not specifically German histories until very recently. Um, like the, the, the degree to which um, global gay and lesbian discourse has been dominated by the anglophone world is not to be underestimated and still is and by the way germany is like number two in that and then there's like like no one talks about like the lucifone world no no, no which is more people there than german speakers like no one talks about like you know even the sort of history like, people talk about i mean people talk about france a fair bit because of um Foucault and Ackengem and, and the fhir um, but there's just a lot of stuff that isn't, there's just a lot of, a lot of these other ways that this all worked out that, that aren't spoken about or spoken about even less than, than Germany's. At this point, it seems like you have like the Anglos and, and Germany are each chasing the other's mythologized history, like Christopher Street getting imported yes. here and the, and the, the U S is then talking with Weimar and everybody's kind of like recreating these sort of, these very imagined in a yeah. weird way, yes. Although just to be clear, the like German gay liberation of the seventies and eighties is is really uh, self consciously recovering the is really self consciously involved in a the recuperation of the Weimar history and b the construction of themselves as like the fact that they were a, per- a persecuted class during the Holocaust, which is true, mm-hmm. becoming a justification for state recognition and lack of prejudice now. Um, so there is that, like that, that, that very German history is also very much a part of of that as well. Well, yeah, thank, thanks, Ben. I mean, I think that's that's really fascinating and takes us through all the history. Um, unless anyone else has any other questions, though, uh, I would like to close by asking 
who of the twelve in your book who is the who's your favorite or I guess I guess the baddest of the the bad gays like who should who should our listeners get very excited about when they go we hope all go buy your book you mean when they go to badgayspod.com slash book or exactly. visit your local bookstores or come on July 5th to Prince Eisenhurst in Schoenberg at uh, 8.30pm <laughs> and uh, meet you and I in person and get their book signed um, no, uh, there's I'll name two people um, Ernst Rain, who we already talked about, that Nazi commander he is, I think, the worst person in the book I mean, just an absolute unredeemable piece of shit um, there are two others in the book who are not the baddest gays but they're the ones who are mo- the most on the complicated side of evil and complicated um, and they're from two really different time periods in history. One of them, uh, Pietro Aretino, is a, a Renaissance Italian uh, satirist who writes poems that are so like biting and funny and revealing of bad behavior that like the Pope is afraid of him. Um, and he uses this to like he becomes very rich and then like pisses his fortune away, basically on just giving money to people. Um, nice. And then the other one is uh, Roger Casement. Um, major historical hottie, one of the most just attractive people you have ever seen, um, who is an Irish journalist who does some reporting on the evils of the Belgian and Spanish uh, colonial empires on behalf of the British Empire to help the British Empire show how good they are in comparison, uh, but still does a lot of the, does some of the reporting that reveals to white people in Europe how brutal the Belgian regime in the Congo is, and then starts taking the anti-colonialism stuff a little too seriously for the British's taste, i.e. starts running guns to the IRA for for the Easter Rising, and then gets arrested and hung for treason. And so those are two people whose stories I think are are really great in the book that are are more on the complicated side than just your like utter pieces of shit like Raymond, Roy Cohn, and Tim Fortown, who who we talked about already. For the record, you, you just looked up. Oh, Casement. I just yeah, yeah, I just googled he has a historical Casement hottie. He's got a good beard. Yeah, <laughs> extremely good it's beard, nice like piercing, <laughs> piercing, piercing blue eyes. Um, and he kept. We quote from these diaries in the book, but he kept um, two sets of diaries when he was traveling in the colonies. One set of diaries was all of his notes about the atrocities that he saw, and one set of diaries was every person he had sex with, including the size and shape of their dick. Oh my god! Nice. So, yes, if you want to read the memoirs of a size queen on tour. <laughs> Anti-colonialism has gone so far down. <laughs> but then, of course, there's still, like, a very colonial attitude in that, right? Like, these men are available to him because of the colonial system, and there's, like, a colonial... Oh, these weren't other, level. like, other colonizers that he's... No, 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 but he's... I mean, even if he's... If, so if he's... Like, there's also a long tradition, right, of white Europeans going to the colonies and seeing colonized people as a kind of source of exotic right. sexual kicks yeah. and so there's, there's there's definitely some of that going on as well um in this so yeah well, and, and hence complicated complicated yeah. and you mentioned because you mentioned laurie marhofer earlier and um just to plug their like most recent book they just had a new book come out yes. called racism in the making of gay rights which kind of explores exactly that like the relationship yes. specifically between Hirschfeld and yeah. uh, his younger chinese lover li Shutong. Um, and yeah, it's a really great book. I'm in the middle of reading it right now, and uh, we're actually hoping to have them on uh, our show for a special oh, episode about fantastic. that book. So yeah. people can also check out our show on every podcast platform. Um, and, you can probably uh, guess the name, but just in case. Yep, Bad Gays. Um, <laughs> and again, that and the book are by me and the wonderful Hugh Money. And follow Ben on Twitter. 
at Ben Writes Things. And anything else to plug? Any? Um, no, I think that's it. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, I will plug this. Um, people who live in Berlin um, may have been to or may not have been to the Schwulesmuseum, which is the queer museum in Berlin. Um, that was founded in 1983, very much as part of this these liberation movements that, that uh, we're talking about. Um, I'm now on the board of it, and it's a really complicated and fascinating and interesting and mostly wonderful place. Um, and I would suggest people checking out our events and exhibitions and um, pretty much everything we do has an English component. So even if you're not a German speaker, you'll be able to make your way through exhibitions and uh, see some really cool stuff. So Great. Well, thanks yeah, so much. Yeah, we will link ben. to all of that. And yeah, thanks so much, Ben. That was really fascinating. Of course. Thanks so much for having me on. Now we have to all say cheese. Cheers. 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 Thanks, guys. Cheers. 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 That was way too realistic. <laughs>